Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Victoria Bañales. Tonight, I have the pleasure of speaking with Latinx poet Violeta Orozco, who has just published a new book of poetry called The Broken Woman Diaries, a beautiful collection from which she will read several of her poems today. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Violeta. Violeta Orozco is a bilingual writer from Mexico City living in New Jersey. She is the author of three poetry collections, El Cuarto de la Luna, published by Proyecto Literal last year in 2020, and The Broken Woman Diaries, just published by Andante Books. She also has a third collection, Seen by the Night, La Edad Oscura, which is forthcoming by Nueva York Poetry Press. Violeta is a 2021 recipient of the Banneth Literary Translators Residency in Canada, she is also a literary translator with her own column of Chicana and Latina Poets in Translation for the magazine Nueva York Poetry Review. And she is a PhD scholar of Latinx and Latin American literature at the University of Cincinnati, focusing on translation and creative writing. Her poems and essays have appeared in Acentos Review, Harvard College's Palabritas, Malk's Journal, Osalta and Latinx anthologies like Nuestra Realidad Anthology from Somos en Escrito magazine. So welcome, Violeta. It's so good to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Vicky. I'm really happy to be here um, and uh, in this virtual space, which is also in California. And just so our listeners know, we will be posting links to you and your poetry books on our Hive Poetry Collective website. And we encourage listeners to purchase a copy of The Broken Woman Diaries, just recently published by Andante Books. So Violeta, before we dive into your poetry, thought it'd be great if, the, if our listeners knew a little bit about you. Um, you know, you're from Mexico City, but you're living on the East Coast. Tell us a little bit about that journey and also your journey as a writer, as a poet. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. It's a really crazy journey because it's kind of started. The, the funny thing is, uh, well, I grew up like with both languages and in my household and with both like literary traditions, you know, like reading both kid lit and young adult like literature in both English and Spanish. So I kind of was really hungry for for like meeting poets who were um, also writing in English in Mexico City, but the only ones that were were like the expats from the US who, who had like this club called the American Legion, where it was like Poetry Wednesdays and, you know, we just read, read our poetry and, and shared that in a bar. And then one of my teachers in college in, in UNAM, like the National University, she introduced us to the world like just as I was like finishing 
my my um my degree like college degree she, she introduced us to the work of Gloria Saldua she was like my translation teacher and she was like well you know this is a Mexican-American writer that's really important and when I read her you know her major really important book which is kind of like a mix of poetry and other genres uh, like essay is both in English and Spanish it's it's very it's it's really hard to pin down this is like very free and freeing writing so I thought wow I kind of found my home you know I didn't feel just comfortable writing in a single language or within a single writing tradition I, I refuse kind of like to to just be like uh yeah I guess you would call it like this person with a fixed identity you know I I was not I was not that and so this kind of bicultural identity really crystallized when I moved into the U.S. for for grad school so yeah I think it was also a crazy journey because initially I was going to do my MA in creative writing in the UK because I got accepted into like five schools there (laughs) two in Scotland and three in like England and in the end I didn't get that scholarship so I thought you know I'll just do it in the U.S. And I'm so glad that happened because even if I finished doing like an academic master's in literature, I really focused on, like as a scholar, I really focused on studying, you know, Gloria Saldua, the Mexican-American poets, the Mexican-American literature and philosophy. And that changed my life. I was like, this is my people in England. I would not have found the Chicanos, you know? (laughs) So I was like, so happy to have found a home outside my country like this is crazy in my own country I was not able to find my own voice it wasn't there it was here that's really fascinating and so it's it's amazing to me that in some ways you identified as a Chicana and Latinx woman even though you were right. in Mexico <laughs> right which is so fascinating to me yeah, I was really isolated. Like there was, there, I didn't have any peers besides, you know, the people in the American Legion. So I was really lonely. I was like, I'm looking for something that isn't here, but I just know, you know, it wasn't until I found Ansel Dua's work. I was like, this is what I was been looking for all my life, you know? Yeah. And that definitely is reflected in your writing. Um, and so on that note, right, we could start talking about the Broken Woman Diaries um, uh, which is a book that I had the pleasure of reading from cover to cover, and I was completely drawn into it. And right from the get-go, I was struck immediately, like that first page, and you quote Simone de Beauvoir, The Broken Woman. And then from then, we, we have this, it's like a short poem. Um, and the other thing that I think it's, it's interesting for listeners to know is um, the book is organized like a diary, and I hope, hope you can say something about that. Um, maybe after we read this initial opening poem under day zero, which is the, the day zero, the Doppler effect. If you could just read that, that piece. Sure. Day zero, Doppler effect. I had been going, fading away like the sound of an ambulance the thrill of its shrill screams peeling down the avenue. A kid with his face buried in a book walked up and down the subway, blind, oblivious that I was leaving. 
I had been losing the flavor of my sight. Meaning and pain were leaking out of me. A noiseless plant screeching its torn out limbs. Koryoksauki. The first broken woman. The dismembered one. The original prototype. Her head tumbling down Coatepec Hill. The fall of the waning moon. The only reality that had ever seemed permanent. I, I, I mean, having read the book, I feel like there's a reason why you opened the book with this piece, because I think it lays out a lot of the themes that are forthcoming, because this is a collection that's wholesome, right? All the pieces connect pretty much to one another. But from the get-go, we have this, this protagonist who's in a flight, is fleeing, um, is leaving. And then there's the pain, which carries through and here, of course, with the words like screams, torn out limbs and screeching. So we know something's not right from the very, very beginning. And of course, the brokenness. And then the roots, the roots of the ancestral wounds of this brokenness represented through Koyo Ashaki. Do you want to tell listeners who, who is Koyo Ashaki? Sure. And- the, my connection to Koyokshauki, which is like the moon goddess, is is really contradictory, I would say, because my mom's a sculptor and Koyokshauki is a very famous sculpture. I mean, it's like a mythical figure in like Mexican and um, like Aztec cosmology, you could say, in the pantheon of Aztec gods. But we pretty much treat our idols, at least in Mexico, as like symbols and they're either either like literary, not even literary symbols. I feel like the connection we have to them is, my connection to Koyukshauki is in the National Museum of Anthropology because that's where the sculpture is located at. And you know, my mom would take me to this museum all the time uh, because she draws her inspiration as a sculptor from like pre-Columbian sculpture. And she'd be like, oh, I, you know, this sculpture, they found it when I was a student of, of art. And it was like underneath Mexico City, like underneath uh, El Centro de la Ciudad de Mexico, you know? And, and there were buses. See, Mexico City is like built on a lake. So then this part of, of, of the asphalt started sinking and people were like, what's going on? And they found out that underneath the asphalt, there was a sculpture of one of the main Aztec goddesses called Yuxauki, right? And then they uncovered it and it's this enormous disc about a dismember. It's a slab of stone. It's a circular slab of stone of a dismembered woman. You can see her breasts, but they're, it's pretty much disjointed. There's the breasts here and then there's the arm here. And that's actually, you know, part of like the book cover. Um, it shows kind of like the parts of the body that don't really connect. And so it's not a sculpture that I, <laughs> that I love. Uh, I mean, I, I like it a lot now, but I remember my first reaction as a kid was like, whoa, like this is, you know, like um, this is painful. Like why, why is this part of my culture? You know, like why is she broken? And then the myth is even worse because um she so there's this pretty bloody plot where uh there's a mother and woman food (laughs) and like the and like she gets tumbled down Coatepec Hill 
because she wants to kill the mother and then the brother which is the goddess of war or the Chelsea's brother springs out of her womb and kills her before she can kill her own mother and that's how she ends up being oh beheaded by her own brother and like dismembered as she tumbles down the hill and this for me was very violent as a foundational myth because I thought, yeah, well, why, you know, why do the women always end up getting killed and dismembered and, and punished? Because also her mother was got, got pregnant by a feather and she's punished for that. So it was like, I mean, she didn't even, you know, like, who cares about a feather getting a woman pregnant? Like, should that be punished? I don't understand. So as a kid, all, the, all these narratives are really violent. And I remember like my rebellion against them and saying, I don't accept this. You know, I don't accept to be like this dismembered woman. Yeah, I, I, one of the things that I loved about your book is you take on a lot of mythological characters that are female. It's not just the Aztec ones. I know you do also do with like the Greek and the Roman and and you kind of like create a new narrative and you reclaim them and you rewrite their stories. Um, you know, they weren't bad necessarily. Um, there's always another story that was not told. And so I feel like you do that in your poetry. And yeah, the story with Goyashaki, right? Her being dismembered violently by a brother. Hey. Yeah, all of that. So I, I love that. And, and so I feel like it's incredible that you open up this way because it really it it really sets us up for the rest of the book, right? Because there's the protagonist. Um, I feel like there's um, lots of different things going on, but uh, for me at least, I felt like as a reader, I was following a protagonist who was heartbroken, literally broken, yeah, yeah. because of the relationship. But it wasn't just that. There's also the brokenness of being in a foreign land and feeling like lacking a sense of belonging. So there, I felt like there were those two twin narratives happening simultaneously, all these different metaphors of being broken and the protagonist trying to find their way and stitch it all back together, which I, I do feel like you get that at the end of the book. But as a reader, you really are plunged in and you really do feel that brokenness and the reclaiming, right? You know, you don't have to buy that that patriarchal narrative. Right. So my question is, how did you organize this book? Because it is carefully organized. It's organized into sections. It's organized, it's, it's a diary, right? Day one, day two. And there's different poems depending on which day. Um, how did you organize this, this book? Did you envision the book before you started writing the poems? Did the poems come first and then you organized them? How did it all work out? Yeah, I definitely think that this book is, um, has the mark of being written in several stages because it took me about a year to write it and then about a year to organize it because it was so disjointed, right? That I was like, well, there's these prose poems, which is what gives name to the whole collection. Broken Woman Diaries was initially like just 10 to 15 prose pieces. I cut most of them out, like half of them out, because I just wanted to keep in the pieces that that were really consistent and would like meld in with, with 
all these narratives of, as you say, like, let's say all the ways in which women are just broken by society, right? Not just by like unequal love relationships, but just by society broken down, right? And so the organization was really difficult because I thought, you know, when this book was the book, when the manuscript was accepted, like about a year and a half ago, I thought, oh, my editor will help me. That's what editors are for, right? Like he's going to do it all for me. I just have to sit back and like, and he was like, well, so <laughs> um, we got to make it really consistent. You have any idea how to do that? And I was like, oh man, but so I kind of, I kind of thought it would be, I always try to be like, I want to, to make my reader comfortable. <laughs> so I thought, okay, you know, I, I want, I don't want to freak out my reader. So I think sections will work so that all these sections are kind of like, I guess you could call them stages in brokenness. So the first one is like a lot of resentment a lot of anger and just plain rejection of that state. The second one's like a more accepting state where uh, you come to terms with whatever that uh, spiritual emotional state is. And the third one, the final is, second one would be accepting the contradictions and the third one would be, as you say, reconciliation, right? So it's a process that kind of mirrors it's both a historical process, you could call it, and, you know, women struggle from li for liberation, and also uh, a process that mirrors individuals who have gone through, <laughs> through um, these psychic and spiritual processes, really. Right. Well, it definitely worked out beautifully the way you organized it. I love the artwork, too. I don't know if you want to just quickly say something about the artist. Oh, sure. No, I'm, I'm really like, this is a, a very beautiful collaboration for me as well, because, well, my mother's a sculptor and a painter. So I said, hey, mom, would you like to illustrate my third book? <laughs> and, and she was like, yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> and, you know, it was um, very special for me because we'd never collaborated together on a project as artists you know like I always admired her work but it's weird when you're like the daughter right because you're supposed to be biased but you know I always thought wow she's a great sculptor and a great painter but not because I'm you know her daughter but because uh like I you know I knew all her cohort of like the people who came out from the same art school and uh, you know, I know all their work in detail. I went to all their exhibits and I was like, hmm, my mom has her own thing going for her. Like her style was very unique in like the school, which is La Esmeralda, which, you know, it's like the big art school in Mexico City. It's like where Frida Kahlo came out from. And they have a very like strong activist strain, but you don't have a lot of artists in Mexico who really like are inspired in like, pre-Columbian, indigenous, uh, pre-Hispanic art. This is very rare because we, we're, we're still at a very colonial, we still have a very colonial mindset in Mexico and especially so in Mexico City. So, so I did realize, oh my, oh my God, you know, my mom's doing her own counter narrative. And I didn't realize how against the current that was until I was an adult. I was like, oh, wow, cool, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
That's incredible. I had no clue that your mom. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's amazing. It goes with the themes of the book. You've got, you've got at the very beginning, like an image of almost Koyoshaki, right? There's like a woman falling and she's completely broken and she's falling into like, it looks like cacti, right? <laughs> There's that theme of pain. Not only are you already broken, but you're falling into like a bunch of cacti. Anyhow, well, let's dive into the poetry. So um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. And we are speaking with Violeta Orozco, who's going to read um, a poem from her collection called The Broken Woman Diaries. So I wonder if you could read The Border Body. Sure. Border Body. I carry a dead body across to the other side. Her yellow hair hangs like her life on a thin thread. The road glitters. The broken shards of glass cover the scattered bodies. Human vultures hunkering down toward the trailer, hopping around the smashed remains of skulls and hair, limbs, blood, puddles gathering the grains, beans, potato sacks ripped from the bowels of the truck. I watch the news from another country, squinting to see beyond the blurry video. Her beautiful body slumped on the pavement like another sack of rice. Nobody carries her to the grave. Nobody notices her yellow hair. The gait she had as she walked the most dangerous ghettos in the city. The blonde girl in the brown neighborhood defying death at 3 a.m. Fucking coke stuffed actors, drunken jocks in the downtown area just to prove beauty was immortal. She crossed the borders unscathed, walking the tightrope, the barbed wire between life and death. That was a very impactful poem. There's so much happening in this poem. First and foremost, um, the poem is for a woman named Nancy Jasmine who died young, just as she predicted. So is this poem about Nancy Jasmine? And could you tell us a little bit about this person? Yeah. She was my best friend in high school and um, she, well, you know, I met her when we were both 17 and she died before she turned 30 by just a road accident. But considering, you know, the neighborhood where she had come from and kind of her whole life of like resistance against gender violence because she was like an extremely attractive woman. Uh, she was, a, she was, a, she was an actress before Me Too, before the Mexican Me Too, you know, when, when she died um, young as, you know, when we met 17, just joking around about being artists and dying young, you know, yeah, you know, like the club of the 27 and, uh, dying before 30, you know, just when I found out about her accident, I, I was, I was beyond myself. I was so furious because I thought, wow, 
even if she died in a car accident, in a way, the circumstances of her death for me were very clear. Um, you know, I feel like it was the circumstance where she was still a victim of gender violence, even though she died in an accident, because she kind of fled Mexico City to go work on the beach as a bartender, you know, because she got tired of all, like, all the violence she suffered within the acting industry, all, all, all the simply to get a role, all the things she had to do, the people that were constantly trying to abuse her. And she got tired of it and she just moved to, you know, to the beach, to Playa del Carmen and, and then just died under extremely strange circumstances four days before I moved to the US. So I couldn't even go to her funeral. So for me, this was very traumatic because I even looked up the, the news of her death because I couldn't believe she had died in such strange circumstances, run over by a truck. So I looked up the news of the death of my best friend to make sure it was true. And I, and I found it after hours of looking and, and I just saw the video and the video showed not the people like taking care of the bodies that were strewn on the pavement, but the people taking out from the truck, just the, the food that wasn't there, you know, the, the sacks of rice, the beans, they didn't care about the bodies. Wow. Um... I feel like the poem, when I read it, there were so many things going through my mind. I don't know if you were intentional when you wrote this, because obviously it's about a real person who died, but it made me think of um, immigrants who crossed the border, you know, and they hire a coyote, and oftentimes they come in trailers or trucks, and they are hidden, maybe with produce that's going across the states, and did it, did that cross your mind at any point that there could be those parallels and, and I'm saying because speaking of the collection as itself because it deals with the borderlands and immigrants and uh, people who are seen as disposable and exploitable for sure that's she was a border crossover sorts because she was from one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in in uh the peripheral area of Mexico City called Ecatepec. It's even called the monster of Ecatepec because femicides there are more common than any other crime. It's basically the most dangerous spy in Mexico City. And, and she was continually crossing that border, you know, between her neighborhood and Mexico City because actors finish late. You have, you still have to get home. Yeah, you finish at 2 a.m. You still have to get home at 3 a.m. Sorry about that. And if you're a woman, and you know, like her, a very white blonde woman in, in a very brown neighborhood, like it's got them. So there's all these racial uh, uh, issues, right? Race, class, gender that, that really were against, which really put her at, at risk. And, and she was definitely, she learned how to cross those borders, staying alive for so many years. And that's one of the reasons why I really admired her so much, you know, because so many, there are so many people that are border crossers, even beyond the Mexican American border.
If you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, and we are talking with Violeta Orozco. Um, she just read her poem called Border Body about Nancy Jasmine, a friend of hers who actually passed in a violent accident. Um, and we're talking about the, the multiplicities of the borders, and I think that's loud and clear in the beginning of your poem when you said, I carry a dead body across to the other side. And the poem itself is called Border Body. Yeah. So there are those multiplicities at play. And then of course, later on you do say, as she crossed the borders becomes uh, multiple. Uh, right. But I feel like when I read your poem, in addition to thinking of immigrants, I mean, it can be applied that way. I also um, did wonder if it was a real person because it, it is dedicated to Nancy Jasmine. So there was that also like, well, no, maybe this was a real person, which it looks like it is. Yeah. Um, but it felt like, an or I read like an obituary. Right, it you is. Know? And that was the beauty of the poem because like you say, right? You saw it on the news and it looked like they were more concerned about the bags of the beans and the potatoes and the rice. And we become disposable bodies, right? right? Unless you're famous, right? Um, you're part of this elite group of people, then all eyes on you and you got all the rescue squads coming out. So she was just treated like another, like a bag of produce, an object. But you actually, and what's so interesting is you say, nobody carries her to the grave. Nobody notices her yellow hair, but then you do because you're writing this poem and it read like an obituary, you know, like where you, you talk about her strength and her gait. And it just sounds fierce to me, like such a powerful woman who would walk the streets at 3 a.m. And so I, I thought that was pretty amazing. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention about this poem before we move on to the next one? Mm, I mean, I think you're right about all the unwritten stories about immigrants, right? Even within, for example, even within Mexico, you know, this whole immigration from the periphery, what we call, whatever that means, right? The peripheries, the, the, the suburbs, the rural parts of Mexico to Mexico City, and all the migrations that are not just to the US, but like from the, you know, from Guatemala to, to Mexico. Um, we we definitely have like an underrepresentation of those other inner migrations too and and all of the all of the complexities of of making those stories visible as well i think that's that's something really important yeah and i think that's the beauty of a poem to write once you write it like it's no longer yours it takes a life of its own and so you wrote it but actually you, you can really see this as a poem of someone who crossed the border and was um, you know, right. Those deaths are real. They really do happen all the time. Right. So, all right. So let's move on to your next poem from the Broken Woman Diaries. And this one is called The Spider. And it is uh, an opening poem, right? After you, the section with the Koyoshaki, this, this is like the poem that follows. It also inaugurates the collection. So want to read that poem, The Spider. This one's after Gloria Anseldua, because in, um, I think it's in, not in Borderlands, but in her second book, she talks about her 
being a kind of mediator, a spider that's holding worlds together. So that's the title of the poem, The Spider. Walking the tightrope across two countries, I balance my body and the deadly air. My song is torn among the four directions, the deadly oceans froth below me. I know I cannot stay for long up here. The rope will tear, my limbs will give way eventually. I've been trying to keep a precarious balance, willing to believe my balancing act will restore the order of the world. Perhaps if I manage to stay, they will keep me on this side. I am terrified to fall into the desert. Every side is the wrong side. They think I want the greener grass when I don't even believe in the mirage of the land. Shifting below me, the tectonic plates ripping the continents apart. I'd rather stay here, neither here nor there. Here in the border between worlds where no one can reach me, throw me out into the open. I'd rather keep my act together, salute the crowd from a distance, smiling to the sun, put one step forward without looking down at them, at those who think I'm some sort of bird gliding among the buildings and the treetops, unafraid of the alien skies. They are wrong though. It is the earth that I fear, the grip of gravity, the shock of the pull of the mainland or the wave jerking me away, awake from the nest I built up there, somewhere among the clouds, slowly gathering my sticks and leaves, weaving a tapestry, a magic carpet that would outfly their planes, bridging mountains and building skyscrapers and highways among the highways of the tall trees and the thick vines that branch out to reach me. As I have branched out towards you, stretching across rivers and islands, unraveling till I reach the silken route, the invisible path I have paved among the skies. My goodness, ah, Gloria, after Gloria Anzaldúa, this is definitely about the borderlands for sure. And Nepantla comes to mind, right? Uh, and you mentioned the, the in-betweenness. One thing that fascinates me about this poem, having read Gloria Anzaldúa's Borderlands, and it's actually a book that I, I, I love. I mean, who doesn't, right? If you're Latinx, <laughs> sad, you, you're like, where have you been all my life? Um, Gloria Zaldúa's book, Borderlands La Frontera. One thing that fascinated for me reading your poem, because um, she talks a lot about this, right? Those ambiguities and the contradictions and the struggle, ni de aquí, ni de allá. Right, right. Um, but, but her approach is different from yours. You're definitely struggling, right? You, you're in these two different cultures, two different languages, two different spaces. She from what I recall, she kind of inhabits it. She's like, you know what? I'm just going to make this place my own. And she says something like this thin piece of barbed wire. I don't know. I might be misquoting. She's like, that's my home. And it's painful. It's always painful. It's, you know, but she, she makes, that's her home. That thin piece of barbed wire, basically the border fence. 
what I noticed with your poem is different. It's a different strategy. And I was like, wow, your strategy is you, you, you're weak. And it connects to the title, I suppose, the spider, right? Because you're weaving this magic carpet. You're flying above. You're afraid. And you mentioned that you're afraid of the earth. Like, so I'm curious about <laughs> this, this part of you. And it sounds like you're comfortable up there in the clouds. And you don't want to come down. And then back to the tightrope. So that, that tightrope, that balancing act, which you could fall. You could fall <laughs> down. So tell me a little bit about that, because I know you've read Gloria Zaldua and her, right. her strategy versus your strategy, and right. it's always in motion, right? They're always in flux. I think, yeah, I think it's interesting because she, see, when, when I did like a really close reading of um, this bridge called My Back, which which is not just is exclusively her work. It's, it's, it's an anthology of, of several women of color, um, testimonial writings and poetry and hybrid genres. Like uh, it's, it's a multi-authored book, it's not just her. But she writes many of the introductions and in them she mentions, well, you know, we're creating this metaphor, the bridge, because um, it helps us explain how we are going to to build this collectivity together. Um, and the interesting thing about this bridge metaphor, which we can see is pretty hackneyed today, maybe, right? Like, oh yeah, building bridges across cultures. Yeah, sure, you know, we that wasn't the seventh, like that, that collection came out in, in like the, the 80s, right? But the interesting thing is that metaphor changes in the collection. So that bridge becomes pretty flexible. It becomes a web. It becomes a tightrope. She does talk about a tightrope. And so um, I realized my own way of inhabiting the cultural uh, borderlands is I've been, you know, there's this interesting bias for people who haven't unsettled their, I guess, the place where they've lived in, which is, you know, uh, people assume that you're comfortable in your home country this is not always the case, right? If you're a woman, like in my case, right? As a woman in Mexico, I was never fully at home because you get so much harassment that you can't really be fully at home under those circumstances. <laughs> you're always othered, constantly othered. Uh, you're always uncomfortable. You're always fleeing because not, spaces aren't really safe, right? You have to be constant movement, constant adaptation. So then for me, it's very, you know, this space of like unsettlement is really familiar because I've always been um, sort of like adapting and changing. And in this sense, I am a little bit afraid of, I guess, like, for example, setting up roots <laughs> in a single place because just staying in a single place will prevent me from keeping on growing, right? And adapting, and changing. And again, who says that roots are good, right? Like saying, oh, I have roots in, in Mexico City and the Midwest, East Coast, whatever. Well, does that mean that you're so fixed to those places that you can't adapt it to a new place? That you are completely incapable of, of living anywhere else? That's bad. That's bad, right? Like we should be able to really to live elsewhere, right? And th that's kind of the metaphor of like living in the skies It's and the pull of the land and the mainland. I think living in the East Coast, I've learned a lot from like 
the 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 Caribbean um, populations that have that you know the diaspora really like the diaspora in the U.S. where wherever they're from they live outside what is considered their homeland which is a category that doesn't really make sense if you were born in the U.S. right but still for example if you're Puerto Rican and and uh, you know like born in New York but they still call you Puerto Rican but then when you say home country well, it's not exactly Puerto Rico because you were born in, in New York, right? Uh, so, you know, or, or Chicanos, and it's very clear, like born in Texas, born in Arizona, born in California, like the homeland is not Mexico anymore. So what are you talking about? Why do we have this concept of home, this concept of the, the whole like Abrahamic concept of the homeland and the return to the native land? What does that even mean? I've never felt like I have a place to return though, although I do have, you know, uh, you know, I'm a full national citizen of Mexico. Sure, but the whole, you know, my whole collection is based on the premise of, yeah, what am I supposed to be returning to? What guarantees does my nation state offer me of anything, right? Any kind of stability. I think that's the myth in any country, not not just Mexico and the US, right? Yeah, and um, thank you for that. And your explanation. And also when you read through the poem, there's a lot of agency. So I felt like there was some fear of like, um, well, it's not safe, right? It's, mm-hmm. there's, it's just the images that you have here where um, I know I cannot stay for long up here. The rope will tear. My limbs will give way eventually. I have been trying to keep a precarious balance, willing to believe my balancing act. And um, you also say every side is the wrong side. And th- that's the struggle of a lot of Latinx people, right? It's like, like I said, nepanta ni de aquí ni de allá, right? It's like, you're not accepted in the U.S. necessarily because you are seen as different. Right. As other. Then you go back to Mexico right. and you're not accepted over there because they're like, oh, well, you're a pocho or right. if you're a feminist, yeah. right? As, as yeah. yourself, you identify as probably early on as a feminist woman. And then mm-hmm. in Mexico, it's like, you know, uh, right. you become othered and you don't fit in. Yeah. So I feel like there's a lot of agency in the poem where you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to just stick up. And at the end too, where you're, you're weaving something special, you're weaving something that works for you. Who knows where it's going to take you? We don't know. Right. We don't know. You leave that open, right? Because it's like you say uh, that you're weaving something and I will reach the silken root, the invisible path. I have paved among the skies. So there's a lot of agency there. You're doing something creative and creating a world of your own. Who knows where that path's going to take you? Right. Don't yeah. know. Yeah. That's a task. <laughs> yeah. And, and the task of the reader, right? The reader kind of has to read their way into, yeah, into like their own <laughs> homeland of words in a sense. Yeah. This is a fantastic poem. I love too the use of enjambment. You use that a lot. Right. And it works beautifully. Oh, and yeah. this particular poem is written in couplets. Right. Most of them. I think it's just the last line that's, that's right. different. But, so it, it's just beautiful and open to different interpretations. But I love that play with Anzaldua because it made me rethink her borderlands, mestiza consciousness, and this was alternative space. Right. <laughs> so, all right. So we're speaking with Violeta Orozco, who's reading from her collection of poems, 
the Broken Woman Diaries. And she's gonna now read another poem from her collection called Open Letter. Okay, here goes, Open Letter. I write this to you knowing you won't understand because every poem is a love letter to an unloving ear, to someone who has failed to listen, is too afraid to talk back. Perhaps our best poems are love letters to absence, silence, dead lovers, forgotten faces. Perhaps our best words are fraught with pain because only in pain can we be humble. Only in pain can we be true. I long the day I can speak for myself. Speak to myself without having to speak to you in pain. Perhaps one day I may be able to give you words that soothe, words that are able to love you in your dark corner of loneliness, caressing hands in this tactless age. Perhaps I have learned over the years that though these words may not reach you, they are for you and not only for you. They exist for anybody that might need them on the nights when they most feel unlistened and unloved. Perhaps one day this poem may become more than a poem. Break the countries that tear us apart. Become the love we were not able to give. I was not able to materialize. Thank you. That was Violeta Orozco reading open letter from her book, The Broken Woman Diaries, just published. Um, Okay, Violeta, so the burning question, you don't have to answer, but uh, since I read your whole book, <laughs> and uh, I think this is the first time today, at least tonight, you're reading your poems, where there's that you, that you, the addressee, because um, <laughs> there's a theme running through the book of the brokenness, there's the protagonist, yeah. and there's this relationship, there's a struggle, there's this constant uneasiness, perhaps being unfulfilled. And it's so easy to identify with the book because, you know, you don't have to be Latinx. You don't have to be an immigrant. You don't have to be a woman. Yeah. All of us have been through relationship struggles. All of us have had to walk away, even when it was painful. Yeah, I felt that throughout your book. I was like, oh my goodness. And then I love how you connect it. Also, again, like I said, with your identity in this these foreign lands. So there's the broken... There's so many levels of brokenness. Right. But so here, there's that you. And um, is this based on a real experience of yours? Is it more metaphorical? Was there really that you out there that you experienced this? It feels real to me. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. You don't <laughs> have no, they're all real. I mean, I think this is the cool thing about poetry, right? One of the cool things that that you don't you don't have to pretend you're someone else right <laughs> it's the most innermost you whoever that is whoever you have become and i don't know i feel poetry is this space where you don't have to hide at least where i don't have to hide and um it, in a sense you know 
most of these poems, and I was noticing this in like the final draft, I was like, should they have like, you know, uh, the dedication, like La Dedicatoria, you know, like the dedication to whoever they were written for. And I thought, no, maybe one of the most beautiful acts of, I call it the revenge of the poet, is you delete the name of who the poem was written for. I did that with at least 10 different names in this collection and I felt so fulfilled, deeply fulfilled. I was like, yes, this is what poetry was meant for. It was not written for those people, right? The people who, who uh, abandoned you or you abandoned or, or you there was some parting of the ways or, no, 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 no. Poems were not written for them. They were written for all those who are going through the same processes. In a sense, they're for everybody. They, they, so much would be lost if they were just for this one person, right? <laughs> so yeah, of course, you know, like so many of these poems are like, you know, uh, laser specific. <laughs> but in a sense, I think noticing that the mere act of, of writing them right and making them come out of this private space uh gives them a different dimension yeah and i feel like like i said it's a thread that carries through throughout the book but there is um there is resolution at the end i felt it i felt like there was healing and resolution at the end it's like the you really end up with a protagonist for, it starts with like the madly in love. It's like the honeymoon stage and it's like, woo. And then comes little by little comes the brokenness. It starts to kind of creep in. And by the end it's, it's broken, but that's not a bad thing. We realize at the end of the book, like the brokenness is not a bad thing. And you even say it in your poems, like, right. oh no, that this is, I, I found myself, you know, here it is. But uh, yeah. There's a lot of wisdom in this in this poem here. I, I love this part at the very beginning where you say, I write this to you. And of course the you can be anybody. Right. No one you won't understand because every poem is a love letter to an unloving ear, to someone who has failed to listen, is too afraid to talk back. Perhaps our best poems are love letters to absence, silence, dead lovers, forgotten faces. And it just got me thinking of that. I, do you want to say anything about those lines? Sure. Um, I think that even, you know, writing, I think I refrained about seven years from writing love poems like this. Seven years. I, I, can, I can count them, you know, every month. And only recently with this connection, I kind of like, reconnect I guess reconciled with myself in a way where I thought well it's not as of human experience right as destructive as it may be should make us delete or deny or refuse certain areas of herself so you know I had a bad luck with dude x or whatever right but what does that have to do that has nothing to do with my overall experience as a human so in a sense, I understood that there was a larger pattern here that, of course, the people that you write those poems to are never going to listen. Yes, that makes sense, right? It makes sense. What doesn't make sense is to think that they will listen. 
because you never you think you were writing those poems for them right in the heat of the moment in the anger in the in the it just like the sheer fury and in, 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 in like <laughs> of the moment right and, and resentment and the sheer resentment and I think of poems now as an aftermath of experience what do we do with experience well we write we don't know how to process it it's painful so we write we write and we understand that there will be other listeners that our readers are the people are our real in a sense this is an act of love because the people that failed to love us back in a sense are also doing us a favor because they're letting us reach out to others who are willing to listen and to hold us for a brief moment in their hand even if some symbolically right yeah and even and it produces great poems <laughs> Like you say, I mean, the pain, there's something valuable in the pain. I, I do agree with you when you write that because only in pain can we can we be humble. Only in pain can we be true. I mean, not that it can't happen in any other way, but there is, you kind of get forced into that through the pain, the humility and the honesty. So, so. but yeah, it's, a, it's, a op it's an open letter, right? That's the title of the poem. Right. So might've been written for somebody, but it's for all of us and it's there, you, you write it there. Right. It's like, perhaps I have learned over the years that though these words may not reach you, they are for you and not only for you, they exist for anybody that might need them on the nights when they feel, they most feel unlistened and unloved. Perhaps one day this poem may become more than a poem, break the countries that tear us apart, become the love we were not able to give, I was not able to materialize. So yeah, that's really beautiful. Thank you. Love it. <laughs> well, Violeta, it has been a pleasure talking about your new book, The Broken Woman Diaries. So unfortunately, we don't have any more time to delve into more poems. It's amazing that time flies by so quickly. But thank you so much for sharing your work with us today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I, um, I am uh, very honored that you also um, wrote a blurb for the book. And uh, I'm very happy to share it in this space as well. Yeah. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us on the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. And you can find us on Facebook, The Hive Poetry on KSQG, or follow us on Twitter at Hive Poetry, or visit our website, hivepoetry.org. Until next time, thank you so much. Have a great evening. Thank you, Vicki. Good.